Well, here we are back again in uh, Ecclesiastes. And uh, we took about a month off because uh, we had some um, things going on at our church that um, resulted in us not doing Sunday, adult Sunday school for a little while. So we're back to doing that, and uh, so here we are. And since it's been about a month, it would be useful, I think, to do a very brief review. Nothing ponderous, just a little bit. Um, and we've been uh, been going through Ecclesiastes. I hope you uh, find it useful, and I hope you find it encouraging and inspiring. We will take up at chapter 7, verse 15, which is where we left off. And... Um, but let's, uh, let's look at a little bit of uh, what we've covered so far, just very quickly. You know, we started, <clears throat> we, broke down the, um, we broke down the book into um, the parts that um, I think make a lot of sense. And the first one was the teacher's thesis abstract, that is, his hook. What he's saying in the in the thesis abstract is um, he's 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 postulating a concept and then he's going to build um, on that um, just as you would expect. This is a thesis abstract, and it's essentially that life is the mother of all intangibles. That's what he means by vanity, uh, and particularly vanity of vanities. Life is hollow. You know, the earth was made for man. Let's flip back to uh, chapter 8 of Proverbs. I think it's more than just a coincidence that many of the uh, tenets in Ecclesiastes are actually um, are also found in Proverbs. And you could say originate in Proverbs. In chapter 8 of Proverbs, <clears throat> in verse 31, there's something very interesting Let's back up to verse 30. Well, let's give a little, little more context than that. Um, 28, he made the skies above, the springs of the deep. He set for the sea its boundary. The water should not transgress his command. He marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And here we go, verse 31. Rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Now this is a this is wisdom being personificated, and there's a lot of controversy and a lot of uh, well, just that controversy in Bible school circles. But let's stay out of that. Let's just stay with the text and its its meaning and its relevance to Ecclesiastes. God is saying that He during creation that he created the world and he thrilled to be making it for man. Well, there's many other places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but particularly in the Old, where it says that uh, God gave man uh, the earth to control, to manage, uh, as a possession. It was his. It was his gift and, and his environment. And... What we have is the writer of Ecclesiastes, starting out in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, he's saying, you know, earth was made for man, but man doesn't really have control. Man doesn't really, man isn't in the place that he was made. He was made as the supreme part of creation. And yet, he looks around, and he doesn't find himself very significant. In fact, he finds himself very insignificant. And that's the point of verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. We read it at first blush, and we feel that, well, he's talking about the wind continues swirling along, verse 6, and the rivers flow into the sea, verse 7. All things are wearisome. But we tend to miss, and we went through this some weeks back, we tend to miss the fact that this is not about creation. These verses, these 11 verses, are about man. They're about man. And, and the writer of Ecclesiastes is making the point 
that the life man has been given to live is beneath him. It is not up to his potential. It is not commensurate with who man is. Then we broke it into another part, and that was we looked at the teacher himself. And the teacher himself begins with verse 12 of chapter 1. And we also find uh, a little bit more personal uh, comments from the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, in chapter 12. We see some more. And we spent some time looking at who the teacher was or was not, um, doing some guessing, doing some, but some, some, some educated guessing because we, we made the case that you can um, be justified in calling the writer of Ecclesiastes Solomon. Now, you can't be dogmatic because there just is no concrete proof in the book itself. Nor are there, are there any references in other books that, other Bible books, that give us that uh, bonus of, of knowing who it is. However, we made the case last uh, time we went through this that many of the things that the writer of Ecclesiastes says about himself, Solomon said about himself first. So it's very, in fact, I think we looked at about uh, six or eight of them. Very, very interesting things. You need to go back and, and check that out if you want to look at it. This also gave us the title of the book. Our looking into the teacher and his background and his identity gave us the title of the book. Um, Ecclesiastes is actually the, uh, well, Latin, which comes from Greek, and the Greek really comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which scholars call the Septuagint. And there's a little bit of a backstory on that, on that particular name, but it is called the Septuagint. We also saw that um, whether this is Solomon or not, and again, that's not that critical, but whether it is or not, we made a case for the writer of Ecclesiastes being a faithful man, being a God-fearing man. And again, I, 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 I um, welcome you and, and encourage you to go back and, and partake of that section again uh, together with us. And then we moved on from uh, the teacher to the teacher's research. And some of these titles maybe, you know, I came up with them. I'm not sure that they're, the, they're necessarily the best, but at least you get an inkling of, of, what's, of how this breakdown is working. The teacher's research, and that is essentially the second half of chapter 1 and all, or almost all, of chapter 2, where we see him having harems and vineyards and gardens and slaves and silver and gold, and he says he was the greatest person of his time, and all that stuff, all that my eyes desired, verse 10, I did not refuse them. Um, in fact, all the way to verse 23 of chapter 2, what we have is we have him looking back. He's looking back on his life and examining... I mean, he considers himself more able to analyze life's meaning from the standpoint of being a powerful king and a wealthy king with in the time of Israel's... Um, if it's Solomon, a time of Israel's relative safety, well, actually, absolute safety and absence of wars, and for the most part, Israel's golden age. And he's saying, if I can't ferret it out, if I can't come to a conclusion about the meaning of life with all that I have available to me, all the power, all the wealth, all the access of everything I have, then uh, who can? And he gets very, very frustrated. And it is, it is in this section, the teacher's research, that a bunch of things happen. One thing that happens is we get the first three parts of the riddle. And the riddle, as you'll recall from back then, is basically seven things that God has done as an apologetic. Practically a gospel. Pra it's practically the gospel. Uh, it's, it's, it's all but a complete gospel, these seven pieces. And you get the first three parts, 
um, when we go over the teacher's research, and that's um, in the second half, I'm sorry, the first half of chapter two, actually the, actually the latter half of chapter one in going into the first half of chapter two. And those three parts are life is broken, this brokenness is unfixable, and attempting to fix it will only frustrate. In fact, he says this riddle was given to us to make us frustrated. He says that in chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Look at 13. I set my mind to explore by wisdom. 14. I've seen all the works which have been done to the sun. And on and on and on. I said to myself, 16. Well, back up. 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. 16. I Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who are before me. My mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind because, verse 18, in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. He's saying the riddle was given to us to frustrate us. The harder we try to decode life, the more frustrated we become. That's what he's saying. And he'll go on to say, as he goes into chapter 2, and we have verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, he says, you know, I looked back on my life and I saw the things that I did. And he describes, you know, the gardens and the, and the harem and all the rest. And describes all these things and he says, I look back and I, I see myself, I, I look back and I wonder if any of those things led me to, to significance in my life. And he, and, he, and he concludes they did not. He concludes they did not. Verse 16 of chapter 2, as he says, There is no lasting remembrance of the wise man is with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool die alike. So I hated life, for the work which should have been done to the sun was grievous to me. That word there is actually evil. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. And then in verse 20, I completely despair of all the fruit of my labor. Do you see? He looks back and he says that this riddle that God has made in, in life, in response, if you, if you recall previous lessons, in response to the fall, man's rebellion against God, but God made this riddle and he made it to have no earthly antidote. That's what the first half of chapter 2 is saying. There's no earthly antidote to this riddle. And in fact, he'll go on um, in chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, and going all the way through to verse 23, about half the chapter, he says, even ambition, and you know, he describes himself as a very ambitious individual. He says, even ambition, I found out, merely fuels the spinning globe. That's all it does. It just it just perpetuates creation, continuing on, continuing on, continuing on, and not even noticing that man has come and gone, come and gone, come and gone. He says it's very frustrating. So then we get into the teacher's thesis, and the teacher's thesis is the is the very end of chapter two, and going all the way to halfway through chapter three. And here is what he's going to do. He's going to, he's, going to, he's going to tell us his conclusion. And he begins it in a wonderful way. And that is verse 24 of chapter 2. It's a pivotal verse. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? He says acceptance is the only solution. Acceptance of what God has done is the only way to live. And of course, he wouldn't be able to articulate it in this way back in his day, but we know that as having faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's how we know that. Now, what's he saying? And you know what? You may recall from previous lessons that I pointed out that this thing he says in verse 24, it's the end of his trying to make his case, now what he's going to do is, is he's going to tell us 
He's going to give us a few arguments. He's going to give us some evidence. And then he's going to give us some advice. So he's really done. That's why I call this the thesis, whereas before it was the thesis abstract and the research. Now he said this is the thesis. The thesis is fearing God is the answer. Letting God be God is the answer. Look at the very end of chapter 2. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after win. It sounds like he's saying, especially that last verse, that God has done something very perverse and very wrong. That's not what he's saying. You have to remember the context. What has he just said? Verses 24 and 25 are saying... You have to give in to God and let him be God. Why then would he say that what God has done is, is perverse in the end of 16? That's not what he's saying. If you look at it in the whole, the whole context of 24 through 26, what he's saying is you have to accept it. And then in 26, he, he, he describes two different choices. He says you can be the person who is good in his sight, who will give, who, to whom he will give wisdom and knowledge and joy. And then he describes the sinner who is not going to be content. Not going to be content. And in fact, um, whose belongings, it describes here, as being made available for the one who is content. Which is not the first time Scripture says this, by the way. Uh, many Proverbs and many Psalms also have this same idea. That the unbeliever and the ungodly store up good things for the godly and the believer to enjoy. Um, and what is he saying at the very end? This too is vanity and trifling. He's saying that it's, what's vanity? Well, what's the last thing he said? He describes the sinner. He's saying then making a choice to be indignant toward God and angry toward God and telling God that he has not done right, the right thing. This is vain. This is vanity. So those are choices. And... Just as before, and just as we'll, we could see in many, many places, we will find this same idea in Proverbs again. If you flip over to Proverbs chapter 19, Proverbs 19, and look at verse 3. The foolishness of man subverts his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. Exact same thing as he has said in chapter 2, verse 26 of Ecclesiastes. The one who chooses to not believe God, to not let God be God, to not let give God the right and the purview to do what he has done, is the one who is indignant and angry and challenging God for being God. Well, in this thesis section, we also have the last four parts of the riddle. The last four parts. And I'll just go ahead and mention them. God orchestrates everything. We find that in chapter 3. Um, God has blocked the ability for man to fix the riddle of life, to fix the you know, broken life. And yet, at the same time, ironically, if nothing else, he has also made man want to. So that's six of them. And then the seventh, the last one, is this draws men to himself. You can see that over in this last thing, that, that this riddle has a purpose, and it does have a purpose, and the purpose is to draw men to himself. You can see that described in chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. But let's, let me just look at one verse, and I'll show you that. Verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it, for God is so worked that men should fear him. He's saying we can't figure this out, and God has made it so we won't figure it out, but God has also made us frustrated and, and so that we will think of him, we will consider him, we'll be drawn to him. Now, in this section, the teacher's, the teacher's thesis, and you should have an outline, as I gave it to you in the very beginning, um... He talks about acceptance as the only solution. He mentions choices. And then he gets into chapter 3, and he begins with a sublime, I think I can use that word, description 
of God's godness, or as the theologians would say, God's sovereignty. And we did cover this, so uh, you know, check back uh, in that section. But just briefly, he d isn't this interesting? After he says this is uh, this is bad, you know, this is hurtful, bad, frustrating stuff. But then in 24 he goes, but I think I know how to think of it. I think I know how to handle it. I think I know how to how to view it. And he says we have choices to either view it as positive or view it as negative. And then he begins with chapter 3. Immediately after saying those two choices, he begins with God's godness. That's not an accident. And the, the eight verses there in the beginning of chapter 3 are describing... God's control, or I'm going to call it orchestration. God orchestrates every single facet of our lives. That's what he's saying there. And we, we did look at this before, but let's look at it again. Verse 2 of chapter 3, a time to give birth and a time to die. Let me ask you, all of you, or all of those people, you probably know some of them, who believe chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, it is, is a description of timeliness in our, our life events. That's, that's the common interpretation, that every event in our life has its own perfect time, and it comes when it's supposed to come, and it comes when it's the most advantageous to us. No. That makes that passage person-centered, man-centered. And it is not. It is not man-centered. It is God-centered. Look at the beginning. A time to give birth and a time to die. Do you think... Maybe that's the first in the list on purpose. It gives us no room to say that this is about man. Because what control over you, do you have over either one of those things? Your birth or your death? Not very much. Not very much. So then when we got to... Um, it continues on in chapter 3 through verse... Um, through verse 15, and then we go from the thesis, the teacher's thesis, to the teacher's complaint. And the teacher's complaint, maybe not the best title, maybe the teacher's uh, hypothetical questions, or that's what it is, it's hypothetical questions that he's, that he's raising. And he raises two, he raises two hypothetical objections. And these, uh, these are found in, in chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 16, which means all of chapter 4 and half of chapter 3. And he gives just two pushbacks. And the first one is found at, at, at the la latter half of chapter 3, and the second one is all of chapter 4. So the first one, and we again, we did this before, but let's look at it again. He says, Did God goof? Is God good? Is God powerful? Why is there so much inequity? Why is there so much unfairness in the world? By the way, the idea of fairness requires a sermon series all by itself. It deserves it. But... He says, no fairness, no inequity. Is God really on the throne? Is he really in charge? And in fact, he'll even use the word mistake. Jump over to chapter 5 and look at verse 6. He says, do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice? He's saying, you could hypothetically ask, he's, you know, he's got these, these hypothetical people who are, who are pushing back, who are objecting. And the first objection is, did a gear slip somewhere in the machinery? And then, he, and then he answers that. He answers that hypothetical question. And he answers it in several places, and we saw that before last time. But he says God, God is wise, God sees, and God is giving man an opportunity to come to the end of himself. God allows inequity. God allows man's, you know... Um, getting over on man and misusing man, you know, people misusing each other, you know, predator and prey, he allows that. 
in wisdom and he sees it and he takes account of it and he is going to hold man responsible but he's giving him an opportunity to come to his senses so to speak and the second hypothetical question that the writer of Ecclesiastes makes or raises is in all of chapter 4 and it's pretty um, it's pretty hurtful to read it it's 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 got some some zingers in it so what he's basically saying in the second one is well okay inequity and unfairness all right but how about the evil in the world and that, and that means not just the evil that man creates but how about all evil earthquakes and disease and you know things that are not really as a result of man's fall he's saying isn't god present isn't god there and he answers that. And he answers it, again, with three things. And he says, first of all, in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Look at the verse 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after win. He said, this is not the way it was supposed to be. God didn't make the world this way. Man made the world this way. The evil. Not supposed to be this way. And then the next few, couple of verses, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, he says, The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. What is he saying? He's saying, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? If you won't let God be God, if you won't let God, if you won't give him the right to have made the decision, to lock the world into the corruption that it fell into, that man put it into, and that God came on along and then locked it and threw away the key, so to speak, although the key is Christ. Uh, so he didn't throw it away, but God, God made that happen. God, it was God's project. It was God's riddle. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to push back against God? Is that what you're going to do? Or are you going to just check out on life? That's what 5 and 6 are saying. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. He said, are you just going to check out of life? Are you going to say, well, it's better to live life small in the, in the face of inequity, in the face of all the evil. I'm going to get hurt, so I'm just going to live below the radar. He says, is that what you're going to do? Is that your solution? Now, you should know that he says this a third time. He gives a third answer, actually. And it's over in chapter 7, so we won't be there for, well, hopefully we'll get there today, but at the end of our, our, our lesson. But he actually expands on this idea of someone pulling back in life, retracting, contracting, living small, living below the radar, living quietly and insulated and, you know, just hidden out. He expands on this over in chapter 7. And we'll look at that in a, in a minute. So we've seen the teacher's thesis abstract, the teacher himself, the teacher's research, the teacher's thesis, the teacher's complaint or hypothetical questions, and now we move into the teacher's advice. And we did that already. Um, um, I think two lessons ago, we started on the teacher's advice. Another way to describe that would be the teacher's um, proverbs or even uh, beatitudes. What he's saying now, in beginning with chapter 5, is he is saying... The right way is to let God be God. Give him his due. Give him his purview. Give him his right. Will that change the evil and the inequity? No, it won't. But he says, here's what you do then. You live in a certain way. You approach life. You live life in a certain way. And the last time, last time or last two times that we uh, were studying together, we said that there are ten pieces of advice that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives. 
and we looked at um, we looked at two of them. I do believe no three. We looked at th the first three of them. We looked at the first three, and the, and what these are um, is things he says that we need to know to live life to navigate this evil world. Things we uh, uh, plans or, or or tactics to make it in this world that is against us, that is adverse to us. And the first one he gave us was approach God fearfully. Look how he starts. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than, rather than to offer, offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. Approach God fearfully, he says. And we did look at that before, so we'll, we'll skim over that. And then the next one, number two, begins in the middle of chapter 5, more or less, uh, at verse 8. And that is, he begins talking about um, he begins talking about materialism. So number one was approach God fearfully, and number two is beware of materialism. And you can see that he begins in an interesting way. He says, you see, verse 8, chapter 5, you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province. Do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Interesting way to begin to talk about materialism, don't you think? It begins with politics. Politics with a capital P. That is very interesting. And he'll go on to flesh out this idea of materialism. He talks about God establishing leaders. He says there's no fulfillment in, uh, in things. He says more stuff is only consumed faster. He says more stuff increases worry. He says money is easily lost. And he actually gives us some advice uh, in, 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 the, in amongst these exhortations. He says to work on contentment. To work on contentment. He'll also say, beginning in chapter 6, that prosperity can actually be harmful. Prosperity can be harmful. You need to be wise about the things you accrue, the things you accumulate. Yeah, yeah. And he means this in the absence, of course, of contentment. He's preaching contentment, and he says, without it, uh, having things can be a bad thing. And he talks about a miscarriage. He talks about having... Uh, you know, long, long life and having children. And you know what he says? Let's look at that for a minute. He says over in chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying God has decreed what you have. That, that word named, whatever exists is already named. He says, he's saying God planned it. God planned for you to either be rich or poor, or in the middle, or have varying, uh, you know, prosperity and varying, you know, things happen in your life. That's all in God's hands. And then the idea of uh, middle of the verse of, of, of chapter six, verse ten, middle of the verse, it is known what man is. You know what he's saying? He's saying he knows what's fitting for us. He knows what we can do best with, whether it's a lot or a little. And then he goes on to say, you know, whatever you do, in, in verses 11 and 12, he's basically saying, whatever you do, don't argue with God about this. Are you going to dispute with him? Are you going to change his mind or change his plan? plan? And then verse 12, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his feudal life, he will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? He's saying we only think we run our lives. We only think we run our own lives. Do we know what's best for us? We're not in the best position to decide that. That's what he's saying there. We cannot decide what's best for our own selves. So then we go into uh, advice number three. And advice number three is where we uh, finished up last time. 
And advice number three was expect adversity. Expect adversity. And um, he said some really good things about this. He said one of the things that adversity does for us is that it determines the legacy that we will leave when we die and even that, that reputation and legacy we'll have when we're alive. A lot of it comes from the adversity. More of it, in other words, comes from the adversity. Look what he says. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. He's saying living in such a way that you know you'll have an end to your life is a wise thing. Living in light of your coming death is wisdom. So that's one benefit of adversity. Another benefit he'll mention about adversity begins in verse 2 of chapter 7. And that's where he says, and it continues on through verse 7, 2 through 7, he's basically saying that adversity keeps us sober-minded or level-headed, if you like. In other words, it keeps us from, from pretending that life is not broken. How can you pretend there's nothing wrong with a human condition with all the things that happen to us almost daily? Almost daily. And then the third thing he talks about, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 7 and going on through verse 14, is he talks about adversity when it is given to one who is wise results in contentment. It results in contentment. Look what he says in verse 10. Do not say, why is it that the former days are better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Do you see? And under that heading of contentment, he mentions three things. The first one he's just mentioned. Your lot. What God has given you in your life. Because the person in verse 10 is saying, man, God isn't treating me as nice as he used to. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes is say, this is your lot. This is what God is doing. Then look at 11 and 12. Wisdom along with inheritance is good, an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. What he's talking about there is your stuff. Your stuff. Before he was talking about your lot. Now he's talking about your stuff. So he, um, the three things that he um, references when he's talking about contentment is your lot, your stuff, which we just read, and then your struggles. And that's found in 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. He's saying to be content also in the day of adversity, your struggles. So the three lessons he's given, your legacy, your level-headedness, and your contentment, and then under contentment, your lot, your, your stuff, and your struggles. So that brings us up to um, the new lesson, which begins in verse 15 of chapter 7. And what we have here is um, don't isolate yourself from society. Don't isolate yourself from society. Let's go ahead and read 15 through 24. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There was a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked. Do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Let's stop right there. 15 through 18. As we read this, it sounds very strange. And this is one of the difficulties with the book of Ecclesiastes. Many of the much of the wording and the and, and the turns of phrase and the way things are said and the words that are used are kind of confusing, 
And it's very poetical, and it's very symbolic, and it's very nuanced. And you can get yourself in a lot of trouble trying to apply modern-day interpretations and, 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 and even Western, Western views to this passage. It sounds like he's saying that he's observed good people, and he's observed bad people, and he thinks you should be bad because it's better, or somewhere in the middle. I mean, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Why should you ruin yourself, 16? Why should you die before your time, 17? Well, and also go ahead and do 18. And he says, good that you grasp one thing and also do not let go of the other. Doesn't it sound like he's saying compromise? Doesn't it sound like he's saying, well, don't be too good and don't be too bad. Be somewhere in the middle. Well, it's a good thing we made the case early on for the the faith of the writer of Ecclesiastes. He was a God-fearing man. And knowing that ahead of time, you have to come to this passage with that perspective. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something very different. And in keeping with the context. Okay? So what he's saying is, remember what he's done. He has described the riddle, and he has said that his conclusion about the riddle is to let God be God, to accept what God has done. And then he says, you know, some of, some people will not do that. Some people will choose to accept it, some people will not. They will be aggrieved, they will be angry, they'll be indignant toward God. And you know, he called that indignant person, he called them vain, you know? even foolish. Well, um, look what he says. A righteous, uh, verse 15, A righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness, do not be excessively righteous why, why, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked. Do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 18, is good you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. He's saying don't react. Don't react to this perverse, inequitable, unfair, evil world by being super religious, by being super pious. Some kind of false super piety is what he's saying. And then he says in the next verse, don't go the other way. He's saying don't just check out on God. Don't, don't just decide to ignore God, that God doesn't exist, or God is not relevant, or God is not loving or fair. And the keys to these two things, 16 and 17, the keys, there's one word in each verse that are the keys. Verse 16, he says, why should you ruin yourself? That's a key. That's a key word. And then 17, he says, why should you die before your time? That's another key. What he's saying, if you're super pious, and this, of course this is false, you know, false piety, false faith. If you're super pious and you're saying, oh, I won't let uh, any other world touch me, I'll just be above it. And I'll, you know, it can't touch me, it's not, it's not really happening. There are some religious groups like that, by the way, who, who claim that life is not really real. It's just, it's, it's imaginary, it's, it's sort of a, you know, a fiction and a vision. But whatever, this person is saying, I'm going to be above it. I'm going to be super, super pious and, and all that. And what he says, why should you ruin yourself? He's saying you make yourself unusable to God. You ruin your potential for God. You are playing a game, and instead of being in communion with God, you're taking the place of God. And then the next verse, do not be excessively wicked, do not be a fool, why should you die before your time? There he's saying, this is the person, remember, this is the person who we saw described back in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, who folds his hands and consumes his own flesh, one hand is full of rest, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor. This is the man who says, I'm just going to give up. God doesn't exist. I'm going to jettison God. I'm going to act as if he doesn't exist. And this is why the writer of Ecclesiastes says, why should you die before your time? 
You're acting like a dead person when you do that. That's what he's saying. Verse 18. This is also kind of confusing. It sounds like he's saying, pick a middle road, doesn't it? But he's not. He's not. He's not saying that. What he's saying, look at the word grasp. It is good that you grasp one thing. It's good that you grasp. In other words, consider. Take it into account. Be smarter than to go to those two extremes. The New Living Translation, NLT, actually says that. Um, don't go to extremes. But he's saying, um, he's saying overcome them. When he says that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them, he's saying cut both of them out of your life. Overcome the temptation to do either one of them. Don't do them. Look at what he says in 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers were in a city. Isn't that interesting? He's saying you can do it. You can avoid these two things. You can cut them out. You can overcome them. You can rise above them by the wisdom of God. A wisdom that is unlike what counselors, what teachers will tell you. And he goes on, he says, verse 21, Also do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you. 22, for you have realized that you also have many times cursed others. What's he saying? In verse 20, he says, sin has affected everyone. And then in, or, uh, in 22, rather, sin has affected everyone. He actually begins that in verse 20. He says, there's not a righteous man on earth who, do, who continually does not who does good and who never sins. And then he goes on. So 20 through 22. What he's really saying is you have to remember that the reason the world has inequity and the reason the world has evil and the reason people prey on one another is because they're all sinners. And then in verse 22, he says, even you. Even you. So towards, uh, verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. He says, I tried to, I tried to search out a tactic, but it was really beyond me. I couldn't do it. 24, what has been remote and exceedingly mysterious. What, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? He's saying this world will never make sense. This world, this corrupted world that God has given over to run itself the way it asked to when it sinned, he's saying it'll never make sense as long as it's in the condition that it is in. It'll never make sense. The world will always be unfair. Now the rest of the chapter, verses 26 through, uh, well, 25, he says, I tried, I Check this out, and I couldn't come to I couldn't come to an answer. And then so then twenty six or twenty eight uh, twenty nine rather is a very difficult passage. It's a very difficult passage. Some people believe that he mentions women here, um, unfaithful women, because of his experience with his harem, which was huge, and then all of his wives. What was it? Uh, Seven hundred member harem and three hundred wives. Um, he, if this was Solomon, you know, assuming it was Solomon, um, and some people believe, well, he's, he's, here's, here's the easy thing. What he's saying here is, what has he just said? There's sin in the world. You can't overcome that sin in a way that will make the world better. You can't do it. Uh, don't try to check out of life. Don't, you know, overreact. And now, when he talks about women and then men, 26 and 27, and then 28, and then 29, the way to read this is, he's just saying everyone. Everyone. He's saying people are messy. Verse 26, women can be trouble. Verses 27 and 28, men can be trouble. Yeah. Yeah. 
Let's go ahead and read that. I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. What's he saying? He's just reminding the person, unbeliever or believer, that one of the reasons navigating this world will be so difficult is because of sinful people, which includes ourselves, everyone. And I wouldn't make too much of him mentioning women first, or or for mentioning women in more detail, I would just take it that he's saying women and men are both a problem. They're both a problem. If this was Solomon who wrote this, as I've already alluded to, that he may have been more conscious of the trouble that women can be uh, only because of his experience with all the women he had in his life. Now look what he says here. Verse 29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have set up many devices. He's capsulating, he's capping off his statement about sin in the world because of sinful people in the world, and he's saying, this means that your frustration with the way life is, your frustration with the human condition, all of that, he says, guess whose fault it is? He says, it's not, it's not God's fault. It's man's fault. It's not God's problem. It's man's problem. Okay. So, chapter 7, verses 15 through 24, don't isolate yourself from society. We've covered that. Now, the fifth advice that the writer of Ecclesiastes offers us is related to the, to the fourth one, very similar in sort of the same category, he says, live in society wisely. Live wisely in society. Navigate it with a measure of understanding. Look what he says. Chapter 7. Let's go back. It's back up to verse 25. Like I said, there is some overlap. I directed my mind to know and to investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. He says, I searched for a tactic. I wanted to know just how to live in the light of all that's been discussed so far. And um, he goes on. And we've already seen in verses 26 and 27, people are messy. People are messy. Uh, women can be trouble. And men can be trouble. And it's very interesting what he does here when he says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. He's describing the believer. He's describing the Christian here. When he says, wise and knows and wisdom and beam. And also when he says, who is like? Who is like? He's referring to the, some, he's referring to the individual who believes God and therefore has the advantage in living this life. He goes on and says, uh, verse 2, Keep the commandment of the king because of the oath before God. Verse 3, Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? He says, Respect authority. Respect authority. And notice how he um, puts on the same level Fearing God and fearing authority. Living under authority in a godly way. 
Look at verse 4. <clears throat> Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He's saying, can you, can you, can you win an argument with God or with authority? It's like the old saying, if you are constantly going over the speed limit, should you be surprised that you're always having police cars following you? That's, that's, that's what he's saying. The same thing that, will, that uh, Paul will say in Romans 13, where he says, uh, do you want peace? Then live under the law. Live under the law of the land. Verse 5, he who keeps the royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. He says, this is the way to live. This is the thing to do. And then verses 6 through 8, he comes back to that idea of God's sovereignty. Let's read that as a, as a block. Verse 6, for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him what, when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind, or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. It's a, it's a tough passage. There are a lot of tough passages in the book of Ecclesiastes, and part of the reason for that that is so is because the wording is not the kind of wording we're used to reading in, say, the Gospels or in the Epistles, uh, you know, like Matthew or Romans or Corinthians, it's not very plain language. And it's written at a time when the wisest sages of the day spoke in very mysterious ways, very nuanced ways. In fact, you can see a reference to that back in Proverbs. The very first chapter of Proverbs, chapter 1. Look at verse 6. Well, let's back up. Uh, let's go verse 4. He, Solomon begins Proverbs saying, this is why I wrote this, these, these sayings in Proverbs, verse 4, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. You see, if, you, if you've read the book of Job, you know that it's, it's very similar to the book of Ecclesiastes in that there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of nuance and a lot of turns of a phrase and the use of words that just aren't very direct. That's the Eastern way. That's the Eastern way. It's not like us Westerners. And so we have a little difficulty. So what I'm telling you here is 6 through 8. This isn't, this isn't the most difficult passage, but it's one of the passages that is a little bit, a little bit sticky. But he's actually saying something very, very simple, 6 through 8. He's saying God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Notice what he says. The day of death. Verse 8. The day of death. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. He's reprising what he said back in chapter 3. You look at chapter 3, and he begins with verse 2. Well, verse 1, there's appointed time. By the way, appointed time for everything? That doesn't mean that things come into your life at the time that they should come. That's, that's not what that's saying. It's saying God does it when he wants God does it when he decrees. In verse 2, a time to give birth and a time to die. Same thing he's saying in chapter 8, verse 8. You don't have power over the time of your birth or the time of your death. And then notice what he says near the end there. He says in the end of verse 8, evil will not deliver those who practice it. What's he saying? He's saying, you can attempt to oppose God. You can attempt to be that person who is indignant and opposed and pushes back and is angry toward God, which we've, we've looked at that person a few times now in this book. He says, you can, but you won't get anywhere. 
it won't do you any good. So that's the first five um, advices the writer of Ecclesiastes has, has written for us. And as you can see, they're like Proverbs or like Beatitudes. Uh, they are suggestions for living in a faithful, God-fearing way. Now, obviously, we can't really pull this off unless we're Christians to begin with. We can't really live faithfully without faith. And so I recommend to you and encourage you to communicate with your God. If you don't already have salvation in Jesus Christ, be sure you consider the claim that he has on you by dying for you. That's what all of the Bible is about, even the Old Testament. Be sure you give that consideration if you haven't already. And until the next time, believe God.